This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Charles Stotler. He is the co-director for the Center of Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. How are you doing, Charles? Hi, Liz. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. We're so glad that you're going to be with us today. We are getting uh, Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Is he on with us now? Liz, we got another, I'm glad we got another interesting broadcast today. And by the way, if people miss uh, the live broadcast, they can find our podcast uh, on uh, in a podcast app, or you can find our past shows on our webpage in legalterms.mpbonline.org. And I'm really excited to have Charles Stotler here today. I, uh, um, he was joining us from Geneva, Switzerland. I think that's the farthest away we've ever had uh, a guest join us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about space law. I think this is about the, the second time or third time. I've been on the program, and it's always um, really terrific. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting times, and yeah, this is. It's funny because we're, we're talking about space law. We're, we got tech. We got you from Geneva, and Liz from Jackson, and me in Oxford. But that doesn't mean that the tech is always perfect. So we're really had to, glad to connect with you, and I'm glad to be connected uh, with MPB. Can I, Charles, tell us a little bit about your background in aviation law, and if you don't mind, before we talk about the SpaceX launch, would you tell us a little bit about the program that you and uh, Michelle Hanlon have started uh, to allow non-lawyers to participate in, in the educational process for space law? Sure. Thank you, uh, Richard. Great. bunch of great questions there. So I guess I'll start with um, talking about well, first, I'll say that I agree with you. I think in many ways here we're practicing what we preach in the uh, air and space law program at the University of Mississippi. I mean, but for space technologies and satellites, um, this broadcast couldn't be happening today with me here in Geneva. And so um, and in many ways, our program is structured to do that. Um, we've, as many people know who are listening out there, there's been um, difficulties for universities across the country in dealing with education given the COVID crisis. Uh, Crisis And the Air and Space Law program at the University of Mississippi School of Law had a very easy transition during that time because we had already been set up to do distance learning and online learning. And so um, our professors and our students can access our courses online. Uh, so it's, it's been useful, uh, a useful exercise to see how others are, are um, uh, adapting to this new environment. And it's also been good for us to uh, test out some of what we think are good practices in this area. So, um, again, happy to report that we are, you know, we're practicing what we preach here in the space law community using these technologies. As to, as to me and my involvement in all of this, um, I first studied space law at Loyola University in New Orleans. Uh, the class was taught by former NASA general counsel and a Loyola alum Paul Pasterak, and it was inspirational for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed law school. I wouldn't say I loved it. I found it fascinating, 
But when I found face, space law, I really found a niche that I knew I could pursue because it, it, it would sustain me creatively and academically. And I, and so I've been chasing it down ever since. Um, and so that's how I, that's really how my initial, uh, introduction to space law happened then. Um, and my first job out of law school was working as a law clerk at uh, Los Angeles International Airport. So I, I also began to get interested in aviation law issues as well. And after gaining about two years of experience doing that, I went back to school and I specialized in uh, air and space law, much like you can do at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Um, and then I followed a trail of really exciting opportunities that took me all over the world, really, from New York to D.C. to Vienna and Geneva. Um, and I got experiences working with trade associations with the UN, um, doing private consulting on aviation and satellite telecoms issues. So I've worn a bunch of different hats in the field and have worked on many fascinating projects. And I'm happy now to be teaching. Um, and as I said, particular, particularly at a time when we can put all these amazing technologies to use. Um, and I, I think that brings me to the, the to our, our certificate program, which is a spinoff of our regular legal curriculum. And um, it's a, a graduate certificate program that allows um, people who are not lawyers to take our law and policy classes and to learn a bit more about the laws, policies and regulations in the aviation and space domains. It's so great. I'm so glad you all are doing that. It's uh, exciting. And, you know, when I was in law school, uh, we've had Stacey Lantane on several times. And, you know, intellectual property was one class, maybe, that a few people took. Now it's obviously exploded. Space law really didn't exist at my law school. And now it's now it's starting to explode because of things like Saturday's launch. So that was historic for, for many reasons. What, why was that an important launch? And what does it mean for the future of, of commercial space and, and space in general? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and this may sound a bit cliche, but I think the broader effect of Saturday's launch is that space is being democratized. Um, and I, I don't mean that in the way that the Internet democratized communications, for instance, giving everyone who wants a platform for communication or for posting political views or things like that. Um, space launch is still very expensive and, of course, technologically challenging. So uh, it, it still takes very deep pockets and uh, massive amounts of expertise in order to get to space and to do things there, um, such as putting up communication satellites or Earth observation satellites. Um, but what space, what the success of this launch means, um, ultimately, in the long term, is that the costs are going to come down. So space is going to be uh, more and more accessible to more and more people. Um, and that's how this program was designed from the beginning. It's called the Commercial Crew Development Program. It's similar to another program that NASA um, did with commercial resupply missions to the International Space Station. Um, and so uh, the part of the objective is to get costs down, and that will make space more accessible for more people over the long term. And it's my understanding, if I'm not wrong, that uh, up until this point, we've had to use uh, Russian uh, equipment to, to get our astronauts to the International Space Station um, because we really haven't launched from the U.S. since about 2011. Am, am I wrong about that? Or No, indeed, you're correct about that. Well, we've done a lot of launches from the U.S. since 2011, but none of them with um, humans on board. Um, and that was uh, – that – that was the result of a rather long process that actually started in the early 2000s. It was 
realized um, it was it was so let's step step back a bit. The launch service um, that was providing human access to space in the United States before that was the shuttle program, as I think everybody's fairly familiar with the shuttle program. Um, the shuttle program was started in the early 1970s in the Nixon administration, um, and then its first launch was in 1981. And it was envisioned that it would actually really only operate an, until about the mid-90s or early 90s. Um, and its primary purpose was to uh, be able to establish the International Space Station. The shuttle is in many ways sort of the Mack truck of space transportation or was um, and the the uh, the you know the, the volume of things that you can put in there I mean it carried up to eight astronauts it could um, boost up to five fifty thousand pounds into low earth orbit which is where the International Space Station was it was really key for getting all that equipment up there um, but the International Space Station took longer than expected and so the shuttle stayed in operation longer than intended and the costs it was realized were too high um, to give a, a point of comparison it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges comparing this most recent launch to a space shuttle launch but um, the average cost of a space shuttle launch is about $450 million um, whereas the uh, and that that if you break that down to a number of seats on it, that works out to something like um, $56 million per seat, whereas SpaceX cost for putting um, the two astronauts up was $23 million per seat. So um, the retirement of the shuttle was had to do a lot with uh, recognizing that it wasn't sustainable. That started during the Bush administration, and then finally in 2010, I think was the last launch, in 2011, the space shuttle was retired um, with the intent that um, with the intent that commercial operators would take over. And that's when NASA kicked off the uh, commercial crew development program, which is what the, which and this most recent launch was the sort of culmination of that uh, program. We're going to continue our discussion of space law. Hey, did you learn the new jargon from the launch on Saturday? I'll go over some of it during our broadcast. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Okay. Space Exploration Technologies Corp., which is traded as SpaceX, is an American aerospace manufacturer and space transportation services company, and it's headquartered in Hawthorne, California. So sometimes you'll hear them say Cape Canaveral or 
Houston or Hawthorne. And so Hawthorne, California is where they're located. It was founded in 2002 by Elon Musk with the goal of reducing space transportation costs to enable the colonization of Mars. And on their website... For inquiries about our private passenger program, contact sales at SpaceX.com. This morning, we're talking about space law with our guest, Professor Charles Stotler, co-director, Center for Art and uh, Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Are either of you, uh, have you been going to break into your piggy bank to uh, email sales at SpaceX.com to find out if they are charging $22 million for a seat? I would love to have that money. I'm sure Charles would, too. You know, that, that, I think it would be great. I really do. Um, you know, but, I, but Charles, you know, private, private companies like SpaceX, and we, we've had students who have uh, been interns there uh, with the, law, uh, the Air and Space Program, um, have been working for years, even decades, to try to have the ability to launch astronauts into space. So what happened legally to make this happen? How did, how did this happen all of a sudden? Or not really all of a sudden, but how did this finally happen? Ah, yeah, very good question. Yeah, so, um, well, just to follow up on Liz's original question, I, you know, I, I think about quite often whether or not I'd want to uh, purchase a ride to space, um, and uh, I'm, I'm really not sure about it. I think it takes a, you know, a really adventurous spirit. I, 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 I like the Earth environment. I think I'm a terrestrial human, terrestrial being, but uh, if I had the money, I probably would take a ride. Um, but anyway, I digress. Um, so. Uh, as we were discussing earlier, this is, has been the culmination of about 10 years of work um, uh, on the, the commercial crew development program or the CC Dev program, as it's called. Um, that started in 2010. Um, and the idea was and still is that if you get commercial companies to provide a service to NASA um, and to compete over that service, the provision of that service, that the cost will go down. And that has largely been borne out um, by this uh, to be the case, particularly with a, a, a companion program of this, I guess you can call it, which is the, the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program. Um, and the and the commercial resupply services program that resulted from it. So, um, I, and I was told by some of NASA many years ago that one of the hardest parts about getting these programs off the ground was actually convincing NASA that uh, they should let other companies do the design and manufacture of these. Um, these spacecrafts and launch vehicles. Um, you know, NASA has a lot of expertise in-house, obviously, um, and uh, and they do know best how to do things. Um, and so, uh, and, but this is perhaps an important point to consider. NASA has always been using commercial companies to do, do certain things. So, um, you know, even going back to the Apollo program, Rockwell International, um, the uh, a forerunner of Northrop Grumman, um, Martin Marionetta, which was absorbed by Lockheed Corporation and Airjet Rocketdyne, all these companies were involved building components or building parts or even the whole spacecraft for NASA. But it was really a NASA vehicle operated by NASA um, and, uh, you know, was significant um, 
NASA involvement in oversight. Now, that's not to say there wasn't NASA involvement in oversight in this, but the process is a little bit different. This is uh, rather than outsourcing to a private company to do certain things, this is much more of a public-private partnership um, where NASA investment facilitates the uh, the creation of the technology by the companies, um, and then the company provides the service to NASA. Um, and so, uh, so one of the one of the biggest hurdles was convincing people within NASA that that this process would actually work to bring down cost, um, and I think it has. Uh, and I and I think this is serving as a model for other government public private partnerships in many ways. Um, so I think there there will be a lot of spin off benefits to uh, what's happening here with the commercial crew development program. It's it's really exciting, and I think you know um, I think that, you know, this can help things move forward. I, I was uh, an associate dean at Stetson Law School, and we we did a study as part of our uh, space law grant we got um, to do uh, you know what were the impediments to commercial launch from Cape Canaveral and Patrick Air Force Base. And not surprisingly, it was really what we came to the conclusion was it was really the fact that it was all government control and particularly military control. So it was hard for commercial uh, involvement. Um, but let's let's talk about space law in general. Right? So I think a lot of people out there, probably a lot of listeners are going, what is space law? What does it have to do with me as a Mississippian? But what, who, who or what governs out of space now that we're, we're sending uh, people and maybe maybe private citizens into space? Well, that's a really fascinating question with many different facets. Um, so outer space is, is in many ways similar to, say, the high seas. And that's an analogy that you hear often. It can be a bit of a deceptive analogy because they're not exactly the same. But it, it, the similarity is that there's not a single governing body that deals with things in outer space uh, at the international level. It's nation states. Um, reaching agreements on um, laws and rules and best practices uh, about how things should be done. So um, there isn't, speaking about space as a, a domain, there isn't one entity. There are all the countries that have agreed to a series of treaties that address issues in outer space and also a whole bunch of non-binding norms um, and resolutions that, that guide states and how they do things. Um, within the United States, though, um, that those the governance of uh, actors in outer space is done by several different regulatory agencies. So the FAA deals with commercial launch. The FCC deals with um, uh, orbital spectrum, deals with spectrum use, communicating with satellites, and with um, the, the position in certain circumstances of satellites in outer space, um, the orbital slots. Um, and then uh, NOAA deals with regulations for commercial remote sensing. And NOAA recently released a streamlined version of its regulations just last week or, or 10 days ago, uh, I think. Um, so those are the main entities that regulate space from the perspective of a U.S. operator. Um, and that would be, that is sort of not all countries' space law is as well developed as the United States or other countries, um, but that setup is sort of mimicked um, around the world in the sense that there are the treaties that govern what happens in outer space. There are obligations and rights that are created by those treaties, um, and then states implement those treaties in their national legislation and create uh, regulatory bodies for dealing with uh, issues in outer space. 
Right, so I know what an estate planning lawyer does, and I know what a tax lawyer does uh, generally. But what what does it? What would a space lawyer do if you if you're involved in space law? What what kind of issues would you get involved in? Well, that's a very interesting question too. Space law is not like other fields of law, so there's not really um, uh, there's not really such a thing as practicing space law. Now that's changing, and that has been changing rapidly over the past ten years. And more and more, there is such a thing. Um, but generally speaking, uh, space law at, at the international level, it, it's a lot of diplomacy and international relations, um, and which means you would either work for a government doing um, things like what a diplomat does, or you would work for uh, or an academic institution, as we do, and, and write about these things, um, or for a policy uh, or for a think tank or something like that. Uh, at the domestic level, because commercialization is increasing in the United States, there's an in, there is increasingly more need for lawyers who have a very uh, special understanding and a specialization in how the laws and regulations work in the domestic context. So you might, um, but again, that's for particularly particularly with telecommunications, that's existed for a long time. So there might be lawyers who have dealt with the FCC um, for spectrum use and things like that for, you know, for decades that's existed. Um, uh, but more, but what, what space companies really need are lawyers who understand both corporate law, so the traditional laws that companies have to deal with, as well as the regulatory situation um, dealing with the FAA, the FCC, and NOAA um, in regards to getting the um, permits and licenses that are required to do to do space things. Um, that's kind of very generally speaking how the, what a space lawyer would do today. It's so, it's so fascinating. You mentioned it's a growing field, and I know there are a lot of big law firms now that, that now have space law departments, uh, you know, especially in D.C. Um, and areas where the, you know, the other things, you know, it, it, we're, we're basically like, you know, Houston and places like that. But let me ask you, so let's, let's bring it down to, to earth a little bit. So let's say I, I were to travel. Uh, 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 or an astronaut travels on, on uh, you know, out into space, and they're injured. What kind of recourse would they or their families have? Well, that, that's that's also a very interesting question. I mean, it, it would really depend upon a lot of factors, and that's the traditional lawyer answer, right? It depends, but um, that's true. So, for instance. Um, what if an astronaut were were killed? We, we we've had that happen in the past with um, you know the the, um, the Challenger tragedy, for instance, um, uh, in 1986. Um, what would the recourse be? I guess for the families that are involved, um, whose you know whose whose loved one is involved in that situation. Um, generally speaking, uh, there's government immunity f- from. Uh, the government, there's immunity from the government being sued for damages for military and civilian employees uh, who are killed on the job. Um, sometimes if a government contractor is involved, the family of the victim might be able to sustain a, a lawsuit against the government contractor. Uh, and then in the contractor, in turn, might be able to recoup some of those damages from the government. Um, 
but again, I think you can see that there, there are a lot of variables in there. So um, one example, I guess, is a very early example was the, uh, the Apollo launch pad fire in 1967. Um, Betty Grisham, who was the widow of Colonel Grisham, who died in the fire, uh, sued one of the contractors who was involved in building the capsule, American Rockwell. Um, and that, that, so that was the company that NASA outsourced uh, the building of the spacecraft. That suit was settled out of court. Um, and then, you know, similar cases. So we don't really know what the result would have been. But similar cases arose with the Challenger disaster. Um, for example, uh, the family of Michael Smith, who was the Navy, the Navy commander who piloted the Challenger, uh, sued NASA under what's called the Federal Torts Claims Act, which effectively waived sovereign immunity for um, torts. Uh, so the, the U.S. government's immunity for torts under certain circumstances. And essentially what they were saying was that NASA knew or should have known that a, a catastrophic incident was going to occur. Um, now, it's my understanding that all or most of those claims resulted in, uh, from the, resulting from the Challenger accident um, were settled out of court. So I think this is still largely untested in many ways. Um, but again, it, it depends on whether or not the person involved would be an astronaut, a government astronaut, or what's called now a spaceflight participant. So these are private individuals who are going up into outer space um, uh, with a private company. Um, the rules differ for those in those two situations. So again, it depends. We are talking with the co-director for the Center of Air and Space Law, Professor Charles Stotler. Now, we know about rockets because we're from Mississippi and the Stennis Center is in Hancock County. But what kind of rockets did they use on Saturday? I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon, he's our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's lots of different podcasting platforms. If you have an Apple device, it comes pre-installed on your smart device. I have an Android, so I decided to download Podcast Addict. I put it on my phone. Then there's a plus button that takes me to a page to search for podcasts. You can either search or browse. Browse lets you look by category. Search lets you type in what kind of podcast you're looking for, if you know the name. So I just typed in In Legal Terms in the search area. It brings up In Legal Terms. I can touch it. Then I touch the photo to subscribe it. That way I can be notified when there are any new episodes that are loaded up. 
This morning, we're talking about our country, country's space laws with our guest, Professor Charles Stotler, who's co-director for the Center of Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And I, I found the launch on Saturday and the proposed launch of the couple of days before. Just so fascinating watching it. But there's some new words, new nomenclature that we need to get used to. Falcon 9 is the reusable two-stage rocket that is designed and manufactured by SpaceX for the transport of the people and the payloads into Earth orbit. And um, uh, Professor Stotler had talked about how the SpaceX was designed to reduce costs. And one way this is, is the Falcon 9 is reusable. And we even got to see some of the video feed where the uh, rocket came and sat itself down on a floating a temporary platform on an unmanned drone platform in the ocean. Um, and they said it was like dropping a pencil from the Empire State Building and having the eraser land on a postage stamp. That was the analogy that uh, the... Uh, folks who uh, were commentating on Saturday about the SpaceX launch gave about this reusable Falcon 9. We have a couple of phone calls on the line. Let's first go to Ron, who has called in this morning from Tupelo. Ron, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Okay, I just had a question. By the way, the launch was excellent and Elon's idea of having these boosters land, like I understand this booster was being used for the fifth time, that is cool. But my question is, private companies are going to be very interested in mining asteroids, mining the moon, um, looking ahead. Mars could be quite valuable. Can companies or governments or other entities claim ownership of these foreign bodies? Now, that's my question. Let you guys have at it. Well, thanks, Ron. That's a terrific question. And greetings uh, greetings to you there in, in Tupelo. Um, so this is a topic of uh, serious debate, both uh, at the international level. Um, uh, the U.S., so backing up a little bit, there's um, – something called the Outer Space Treaty, which was uh, a treaty entered into uh, starting in 1967. It's got about a hundred and I think it's 109 parties now, 109 different countries around the world are parties to this agreement. And it has a provision in it that um, says that there shall be no national appropriation of outer space. Um, and what the I think what the majority um viewpoint of that is that there can be no territory in outer space. So no country can go up and say, claim the moon for itself. So when the U.S. planted its flag on the moon in 1969, um, we, it, we didn't, that, it didn't become our territory. Um, but that's not to say that you can't use or even own some of the resources that are extracted therefrom. 
And so the U.S. in 2015, um, the Obama administration signed it into law, uh, a law saying that private individuals and private companies can own resources that are uh, acquired in outer space and either used there or brought back to Earth. Um, it's been the U.S. longstanding interpretation of international law that that was perfectly legal. Um, other, company, other countries disagree with the U.S. on that point, um, but the majority opinion seems to be developing that there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, extracting and using resources so long as what you do doesn't rise to the level of creating sort of some sort of de facto territory or taking uh, that would be equivalent to establishing territory. Um, and so that, that seems to be the state of the current state of play on that issue. But again, it's being hotly debated. We have another call, and I love this one. Craig from Biloxi, I will just say my formative years, I watched the TV show Salvage One with Andy Griffith and the guy from Silver Spoons. So I, I, love, I love this question. Uh, Craig, go ahead. Okay. Uh, if Space Junk hits the ground, uh, who is liable for that and who owns it? And how do you identify it? Great questions, Craig. Thank you so much for, for your questions. Um, really, so uh, I th I'll start with the identification part. I think the identification part is particularly difficult. And I think it, it, it has happened that things have come down and it's been um, either un people have been unable to identify what they were or where they came from, um, or if they do identify them, it takes a long time and uh, a lot of investigation. Now, so um, let's see, there are a couple parts, other parts there to the question. The uh, who's liable, the, uh, the country that, that launched the object or the company that procured the launch of the object or the country from whose territory the object was launched is liable. Um, and when something hits the ground, there's, there's another treaty. I, I talked a little bit about the Outer Space Treaty, but there's another treaty called the Liability Convention that has a provision in it that says that if something comes down from outer space and hits the ground, um, the, that the, the country that's responsible for the object is absolutely liable for any damage that occurs, which means that um, you don't have to prove fault. Um, the, the, uh, so the... The entity that's liable is actually the country itself. Um, and then countries have established ways by which they allocate that liability to, in the, in the case of the United States, say, the commercial launch providers. So U.S. law requires commercial launch providers to maintain a certain level of insurance um, to deal with these situations. And then if the damage rises above that level of insurance, because the United States would be absolutely liable for that crash, um, the United States indemnifies the company uh, above and beyond those limits. Um, and so that's, I think that answers pretty much all your questions. Is, is there, was there another bit there that I missed? Uh, uh, yeah, who, who, who owns it in the end? I mean, I mean, like if I have a, a big platinum, a 10 ton platinum, uh, spacecraft in my yard, uh, who owns it? Another good question. Yeah. So the ownership is retained by the, the, um, Ownership is retained by the country from where from which the object came, so it would have to be returned uh, to that country. Um, so you, you, there's no such thing as sort of a, 
you know, uh, a finder's keepers or, you know, if, even if it hits your property, it's, um, it still has to be returned. Um, and that's if the object was registered. There's a there's a, a registry that the United States has established, and other states have established, wherein you register the object and you say it's mine. And so, as as long as that object appears on that registry, then whatever country it came from, that country or its citizens within that country retain ownership over the object. Thank okay. Well. The, the chances are astronomical that it'll hit my yard anyway. Yeah. Well, usually what happens is something washes up on the beach somewhere and somebody finds it and drags it home or something like that. And then you have to figure out where it came from and, and who it belongs to. Thank right. you, Craig. We appreciate you calling in. Now, what's the name of the capsule that has carried the astronauts to the space station? I'll tell you that next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. Now, if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show in legalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. The Dragon Spacecraft. It's capable of carrying up to seven passengers to and from Earth orbit and beyond. So uh, Bob and Doug had lots of room to stretch out with just the two of them going up on the SpaceX spacecraft on Saturday. And the Dragon spacecraft is equipped with 16 Draco thrusters that was used to orient the spacecraft during the mission. We are talking with Charles Stotler, the co-director for the Center of Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Well, Liz, it's great to be talking about, you know, what humanity can do when we all work together and, you know, especially in these times. And so that's I'm really happy we're doing a show on space law today. And, you know, Charles, you mentioned that Elon Musk is interested in establishing a base on Mars. Uh, you know, there got to be a ton of legal issues that would go along with putting human beings you know, on another planet that, that's not governed by anyone on this planet. You know, how, how would that all play out? I think that's every that's the million dollar question. I don't think anybody knows yet. You know, this this is and one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved in space law is because it's still forming. Um, there are some broad contours. I think we know that, um, uh, for instance, under one of the treaties, it, uh, every government is has an obligation to authorize and supervise the activities that occur in outer space. So if you know, we know at a minimum that if uh, U.S. 
citizens and astronauts go to Mars, it will be U.S. law that applies to them. Um, and similarly, uh, if you know Russian citizens were to go to Mars, it will be Russian laws that apply to them. Um, and that situation sort of plays itself out a, a bit similarly on the International Space Station already. So we have some basic models about how it might be done in the future, um, but I don't think anyone really knows how it's going to play out. It's a really good question. I mean, it almost seems like, and this is this is obviously speculation that, you know, as we have done, you know, in our society, it seems like you know because you would probably have people from various countries uh, going on on these uh, uh, trips. And my understanding is that they would live out their lives on Mars. They couldn't get back, at least with our current technology. And it almost seems like they'd have to establish their own legal system. And, of course, their own tax laws, too, I imagine. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really interesting thought. And um, so I think one of the questions that would be that we would have to encounter from a very theoretical level is how much of the laws that we have on Earth could be imported to Mars? Because we're talking about a completely different environment. And then whatever would develop there, how much of that could influence what happens back here? Um, You know, there... In, a, in, a, in an environment like Mars, you, you are likely going to be indoors all the time or most of the time. You are going to be monitored cons- constantly. Every room will have devices to monitor, you know, um, uh, human habitat sustaining systems and, um, you know, the health of the people. And uh, you probably be on camera all the time. You know, so there, there are everything is going to be different than what we experience in our daily lives here. And I don't, that sounds glib to say, obviously that's true. Um, and I don't mean that on a technological basis, obviously technologically, everything will be different and our daily lives will be different. But even from the, the perspective of what our baseline is for things like privacy laws and, um, you know, regular social interactions, what is prioritized, um, uh, from the perspective of government oversight, it's going to be drastically different. Um, so I think we have to rethink everything from the ground up. And by the way, I was just kidding about tax law. I always tell my classes, I say, okay, well, you're, you're stranded on a desert island. The first thing you got to do is get food, shelter, and then, of course, create you know some kind of tax law. And I'm only kidding about that. But, I mean, I do think there it would be starting from scratch, as you said, and that, that would be an interesting experiment to watch. Um, and so, but, but uh, you know, we we can sp- send uh, machines to Mars and have done that. What are the benefits of human space exploration? Well, I think th- I think that's a really that's also a really interesting question. I mean, computers and robots are advancing um, at an extremely rapid pace. So there's an argument that we could accomplish a lot of what we want to accomplish um, just by using those devices. But I don't, I, I, you know, there's, I, I think that there's, I think that humans can investigate much more quickly than we could ever do with machines. So I think there's a pragmatic element to um, actually getting to Mars and being on the ground from a scientific perspective in some ways. Um, uh, and ultimately, though, it, it's part part of it is just inspiration. It's it's creating um, wonder and having people dream again about new horizons. And um, you know, all the technological benefits we come from that process of just dreaming about what could be um, a huge part. That's a huge part of what of what this is about. Uh, so, 
I'm not so sure that the pragmatic practical benefits of human presence in outer spaces should really be um, uh, the driving force. I think it's actually um, the other benefits that we might get from from these initiatives. That's such a it's, such, it's so interesting. And you know, you, now that uh, SpaceX has done this, and you mentioned that other commercial entities will want to get involved, and that will. Uh, drive competition and, and hopefully uh, you know bring down cost. What are some What are some of the legal challenges if I wanted to send uh, my own commercial uh, spacecraft with with astronauts into space? What What would be some of the, the first hurdles I'd have to clear? Well, you'd need a, a license um, to launch the uh, the vehicle from the FAA, and when you get humans involved, obviously that it's it's a more rigorous process. Um, but currently, the way things are structured, there are, speaking very basically, really only three kinds of activities that can occur in outer space under our current regulatory regime, which is, um, you know, uh, communications, remote sensing, um, and launch activities. Um, and that's changing rapidly, too. But um, one of the hurdles, say, that... that private companies have already run into uh, in regards to missions to the moon is that we don't have a regulatory uh, body or a regulatory regime set up to deal with that situation yet. So lawyers have had to get very creative about trying to shoehorn new activities into older regulatory regimes and find ways to make them work. Um, and I, I think that's the, that's the value out of, of um, having creative lawyers on board for these projects. So this is, uh, what, what else do you want us to know about space law uh, in the last minute or so that we have left? Um, well, just that, I don't know, I did, the, the incredible benefits that space has provided for all of humanity, we don't think about it on a daily basis as we're doing things like navigating with our phone or doing financial transactions, but all of that stuff is dependent upon space systems, everything from, uh, you know, GPS um, timestamps for financial transactions with stock markets and with ATM machines and things like that. Um, we are much more dependent on, on um, outer space than we know in our daily lives, particularly in the United States. Um, so I guess just, uh, just the, the, the importance of these technologies and how they've drastically affected our daily lives uh, is something that I hope um, people realize. Charles, we appreciate you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been terrific. Will you be doing remote teaching for summer school or in the fall? Uh, not for summer school, but indeed maybe in the fall. We'll see how things pan out. We'll see. That's that's the, the watchword for this, this whole time period. Uh, that's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We want to thank Jason Klein and Jay White for helping us out with our engineering and for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Gershon, you're going to be remote teaching. Is that right? That's right. This summer, I'm already teaching a remote class. Uh, in the fall, though, I think our plan is to at least um, assume that we're going to be back in the classroom. I'm, ho I'm hoping that'll be true. Well, good luck with that. I'm Liz Gill, and we hope you'll join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 